Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History, we discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D here again today, and we're covering the progressive era, uh, which is kind of hard to put a date on, but it's a nice segue from our last one. We just finished up the Industrial Period Part 2, where we kind of covered labor unions and sort of the, the big response to all this industrialization. We're going to transition from the industrial period to a really holistic view of society through the lens of kind of President Theodore Roosevelt, partially for some of it, um, open bias. I'm a huge fan. He is my favorite president. He's really unique because here's a guy who is a progressive and an imperialist, which are kind of two odd things to put together in some ways, but nevertheless, why he's fascinating. Uh, He himself is a progressive, so we're going to talk about what that means right now. Progressives, again, we kind of talked about populists last unit, Um, and actually industrialization part one, we talked about populists. And progressives are individuals who hope to see, pardon me using the term, the definition, but progressives are individuals who hope to see progress in society. Uh, Things improve, things get better for people, um, and they want to combat the ills of society to get to where they would like to be. And we'll talk about a few ills of society during this time period. With the progressives, we're mostly dealing from about 1890 to about 1920. So we cover much of the industrial period that we've already been been talking about, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, This is one of the hardest time periods in history to teach in U.S. history in high school and middle school, is the time period from about 1865 to 1920, because the units don't fit in nice boxes. They kind of overlap and mesh and stuff, so... Um, It gets a little complicated. So again, progressives are people who want to see progress in society. They want to combat the ills of society. What's wrong? Fix it. Move society forward as they see it. Um, And progressives of this time period, and again, we can have progressives today. Uh, There are people who are politicians, leaders today who, who call themselves progressives, who are proud of that term. So progressive is a term just like populist that kind of advances throughout time and is used quite a bit. Um, so progressives of this era want to see three big branches uh, of society improve. Number one, they want to see um, social injustices, social justice happen at a higher level. Um, some examples of this, prohibition. They out, want to outlaw the, um, the sale of alcohol. Okay, they, uh, So prohibition will be coming back soon. They want to help the poor. We kind of see that with Jane Addams we talked about earlier. Uh, they want to improve education for lots of different groups of Americans, especially immigrants. They also want economic reform. They want a more level playing field for the economy. Uh, these would kind of be like labor union strikes. So people we've already talked about, like Eugene V. Debs, would be kind of considered progressive, right? He's the guy at the Pullman strike last unit that uh, was head of the American Railway Union. Uh, Samuel Gompers, leader of the American Federation of Labor, will be another example of an economic progressive as well. They also want to see restriction of big business. And with progressives, it gets a little tricky because not all progressives are out to, you know, all business is bad, all this is terrible. Um, Take Theodore Roosevelt, for instance. He's the kind of guy that sees, 
you know, um, he sees business, big business and corporations and trusts and monopolies as they should serve the benefit of society, not just their own pockets. Uh, if they become wealthy in the process of that, that's fine, that's great, that's capitalism, that's what we're here for. But they should not take advantage of people overly, you know, violating their individual rights. And, you know, the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers, right? We talked about that idea last unit of the government really siding with the business interests, not really playing it fair, not really uh, being that impartial arbitrator that the government should be, the counterweight to capitalism, the counterweight to runaway business, that sort of thing. So Theodore Roosevelt will be the first president to kind of step up to the plate and try to do that. So we've got so they want to reform society, so social injustices, uh, economic reforms, and they also want to see democratic reforms. They want to see a more level playing field in politics. Um, they want to see the direct election of senators. That'll happen in the 19-teens with the 17th Amendment where uh, citizens of each state will directly choose their senators instead of state legislatures doing it. So people will get to choose their, their two senators from each state. They want to see direct primaries instead of the political parties kind of picking the candidates. They want voters to directly be able to choose their voters for office. They also want to see referendums and recalls. A referendum is when people get to propose a law directly from them rather than having like a state legislature or Congress do it. They also want to be able to recall a law or recall a politician who they feel is corrupt. This is essentially an election where, you know, they'll put something up and, uh, and the, you know, the, you know, do we want to recall this governor? Do we want to recall this mayor, right? Uh, and the last thing and probably the most important one we're going to talk a lot about next podcast is that many progressives want to see women get the right to vote. Uh, it's been far too long since this battle has been waged since, you know, the mid-19th mid century, the mid-1800s. So they want to see that applied to women. So Theodore Roosevelt, we're back to him now. He becomes president after William McKinley is assassinated in 1901. And the reason the guy is vice president at all is because as the governor of New York, his whole life as sheriff in, in, in the state legislature, uh, he had a reputation of fighting corruption. Um, this time period in American politics is ripe with corruption. There's just tons of it. Uh, business interests we talked about, you know, the bosses of the Senate, the Kepler cartoon we talked about, right? Um, businesses are buying out you know, uh, politicians getting them elected. I mean, look at William McKinley's election of itself. So the government really isn't playing it fair, right? And Roosevelt wants to do that. He wants to play it fair. He doesn't want to favor capital. He doesn't want to favor labor either. He wants to be that arbitrator. So he has a reputation of fighting corruption. And guys like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller immediately think, you know, well, where's the best place to kick this guy? The vice presidency where he won't do any damage to us. So he... Uh, they, there's a bit of a surprise when McKinley is assassinated and now Theodore Roosevelt will become president. He's the youngest president to assume office as well. Uh, he's a Medal of Honor recipient, will be much after his death. He's a war hero from the Spanish-American War, so we'll talk about him as an imperialist more with that later. So he'll promise Americans as a president a square deal. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it's ironic that his third cousin, who will later be president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, will have his uh, new deal. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had his square deal. Now, what the square deal basically promises, and I always like to tell students this quote because I think it does a good job. He says that he can't promise every man or every American the best hand. He uses, you know, playing cards as an example. I can't promise you the best hand, but I can promise you there shall be no crookedness in the dealing. Um, basically saying that I'm not going to play favorites. I'm not going to favor labor over capital, and I'm not going to favor capital over labor. I'm going to call it like I see it. So he's trying to be that kind of that arbitrator, that pragmatic, pragmatic person, that middle person between, um, you know, big business and labor unions. Okay. 
So he earns this nickname of being a trust buster pretty quick. He will file 44 lawsuits against trusts or monopolies during his time to break them up into smaller companies. The Sherman Antitrust Act had been around for some time since the 1890s, but again, no one really had the guts to enforce it, um, A, because of the special business interests, and B, well, stepping up to, to take on somebody like J.P. Morgan or Johnny Rockefeller. Uh, you got to have the stomach for that. So he he's his administration will file 44 lawsuits against trusts, which will earn him that nickname Trust Buster. Uh, he'll you know choose to control or trust or simply regulate them in the interest of the public because he feels some monopolies do provide a benefit. But for the most part, we remember him as that Trust Buster. He always loved the outdoors. Theodore Roosevelt uh, suffered from depression, kind of the melancholy as they called it, or really ran his family. And he'll actually begin the process. Actually, better way to. Uh, Put that as he picked up the mantle. Um, national parks had kind of been in the works in the process already. He will begin the process of setting aside national monuments. Those grow into more national parks that we all enjoy today. He has a beautiful um, speech where he talks about you know the the Grand Tetons, the Yellowstone, the Sequoias. These should be for everyone to enjoy. And I think that he really believed in the power of nature and the outdoors to heal the soul. Um, that was always his escape. And when he became ill later in his life, the depression really set in, I think, more um, not being able to enjoy the outdoors like he once did. This guy's an adventure junkie whatsoever. I mean, he he uh, he was a rancher in the West for a time. The only reason he returns to politics is because all of his cattle die in an awful winter. So he loves the outdoors. Um, he, we associate him with the national parks quite a bit. And many other presidents after him will pick up that mantle as well. Um, one area that Roosevelt kind of flirts with in the progressives, but doesn't really take the full on step is the issue of civil rights for African Americans. And, you know, this is a dark time in, in, in us history for African American and civil rights. Um, Really, you're looking at uh, peak Klan membership entering the 19-teens and 20s. You'll see the film Birth of a Nation, which kind of shows that. Uh, you'll see lynchings be at a high in the South. Uh, Jim Crow is in full effect. Segregation, I mean, Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, is, is the law of the land. So Roosevelt will flirt with the idea of grant and taking on this issue of African-American inequality. Um, he'll invite Booker T. Washington to the White House, but there is so much outlash from the South and other parts of the country. How dare you invite um, Booker T. Washington to the White House to dine? It wasn't just inviting him to the White House. It was the idea that it was there to dine, you know, in the presence of his wife, um, in the presence of his family, you know, something very personal having dinner. So there's such an outlash that you know, Roosevelt kind of backs away from that, and he really won't step up to the plate to to really take this issue on during his presidency, which is kind of a shame, but, you know, he, he did, never did. He never did. It won't be really until um, Harry Truman, you know, really, really might cost him election desegregating the military in the 1940s after World War II, where he says, no, the military will no longer be segregated. And putting on an executive order to do so, his advisors tell him, look, you might, you might lose the presidency, but Harry Truman... You know, right after World War II says, I don't care, this is the right thing to do. So really, you know, in my humble opinion, you really don't see a president really step up to the plate and stick their neck out for the civil rights of African Americans until the 1940s. But back to this unit here, okay? So he flirts with this idea, but there's so much outlash, he'll never invite Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House again. He'll keep communication open, but he'll never go any further. So with African Americans, it's a nice transition. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson is the law of the land, and... 
really there's two guys that head of this discussion. Now let's talk about Plessy versus Ferguson really quickly. I mentioned this with the reconstruction unit. This Supreme Court case would be the law of the land until 1954 when Brown versus Board of Education desegregates public education, so public schools. But during that time, segregation is entirely legal in the United States and happens in the South, most notably, but in other parts of the country, you kind of see it rear its head too. So Homer Plessy um, bought a, a train ticket. He's one-eighth African-American. He buys a train ticket in Louisiana to ride the, the white section of the train. He sold the ticket. Uh, he's asked to move uh, in the South. You know, one-eighth was considered, you know, you, you are an African-American. And he's asked to move, and he, you know, he'll sue under the 14th Amendment saying that this is an example of the law not applying equal to me based on race. The Supreme Court will argue that, uh, and I believe, oh man, the ruling, I cannot remember the exact numbers on it, but um, they rule that, you know, that uh, the, the Constitution of the United States cannot put people on equal racial ground, which is, you know, absurd to us today when we hear that, but they rule against Homer Plessy. And so that will be the law of the land. Again, the practice of lynching in the South, unlawful hangings is also common. I know I mentioned that. But there's two people that kind of emerge as the leaders of the you know African-American community during this time, the early 20th century. And that's W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Uh, let's talk about Washington first. He founded the Tuskegee Institute and focused on trades. And he felt that if African-Americans could raise themselves up economically, that the market was colorblind and that they should focus on their own communities and raising themselves up economically instead of challenging segregation outright. Now, Booker T. will take some uh, gr uh, grief from the, of, uh, about this from Du Bois. I'm going to get into a minute. But coming from Booker T. Washington's background, he grew up just towards the end of slavery. He, really, he grew up in, in southern parts of the country. And so he really sees this stuff firsthand. And so this is his opinion how to eventually, you know, Let's long-term this. Let's challenge segregation over time. And this gained a lot of tractions with, uh, excuse me, gained a lot of traction with white voters around the country in the South. It's kind of known as the land of compromise. He makes this in a speech. And it kind of was seen as uh, a light form of challenging segregation. Du Bois, on the other hand, is the opposite. He has the same goals for African-American equality in the community, but he wants to challenge right now. You challenge segregation every moment, every day, right immediately. Um... He believed that African Americans should strive for higher levels of education in the fields of things like law, medicine, the trades. Uh, I kind of felt that Booker T's route, Booker T Washington, that his route would kind of, you know, not put African Americans in a great spot to challenge segregation. And they had a lot of disagreements on this too. And Du Bois grew up more in the North, uh, went to. Um, I believe he went to Harvard, and so he was very, very highly educated himself. So I like to use these two guys as an example of how your backgrounds influence how you see the world and, um, you know, your, the decisions you make, you know, your political opinions. And they both serve as really good examples of that. I prefer not to take sides personally with the, with the students on, you know, which one's better or worse. I just like to say, hey, this is how your background influences how you see the world, your perspective. They're great examples for that too. So I want to end this episode with talking about, this is going to be a little bit longer of a one. I didn't mean it to be, sorry. Um, some really famous progressives that are called muckrakers. And they're given that name by Theodore Roosevelt because they rake up muck and expose it in society and they hope somebody will change it. So here are some of your really, really famous progressives. Um, by the way, you could, one could consider Booker T. Washington, Du Bois progressives. Um, you could consider William, Jen William Jennings Bryan from a few units ago, a progressive. So there's tons of people that could fit the mold of a progressive that I'm not necessarily going to name, right? Uh, if they want to promote social equality, democratic equality, economic reform at this time period, 
they're a progressive. And you can make somebody fit to be a progressive. You can make the case they're probably a progressive. Okay. So let's talk about a few of these uh, progressives, muckrakers. Upton Sinclair, the most famous, right? He'll be the first one I want to talk about. He'll write The Jungle, which tells the story of Eastern European immigrants working in the meatpacking industry in the Chicago area. He intended it for it to illustrate the awful working conditions to help workers out. But all anyone could focus on was the awful conditions of their food and their meat were being put through. I'll never forget my uh, social studies teacher in eighth grade, Mr. Catterley, reading us the story and so... Uh, or a section of the book, so I make sure I read this to students today. He said, I, you know, I meant to hit American in the heart instead of hit it in the stomach. Um, there's direct response. Uh, Roosevelt responded to the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act to get that on track. He'll send investigators there. So there's one of our famous muckrakers up in Sinclair in his jungle. He'll write a lot of other works too. Jacob Reese, I talked a little bit about him. He wrote, um, and with pictures, he was a police reporter and photographer from Denmark himself, a devout Christian uh, who believed in helping those less fortunate. He Sorry, I came around to this. He wrote and took photographs for his work, uh, How the Other Half Lives, which uh, depicted tenement life in New York City, focused on using photos to tell that story. And he offered a solution to have the rich, um, you know, the wealthy of society, you know, to do their part and should help the poor of their own choice, not use the government to step in, but uh, that they should want to help society. And tenements, a lot of times, had high levels of crime, poor family structures, and it did lead to the passive tenant reform in New York City during his, uh, his day and age. Another one is Lincoln Steffens, who wrote The Shame of the Cities. Very, very famous work. Published in 1904. Uh, illustrated the evils of corrupt city government and even, you know, up to state and federal government. And exposed things like political machines we talked about, like Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed. It not only exposed the evils of corrupt government, but really pushed that, you know, typical Americans or the typical businessman, as he will he'll point out in his work, um, need to do something about it. You know, there's the big business folks, and then there's your typical American or typical businessman that they need to pay attention to what's going on. They need to pay attention to government politics. Become civically active. Challenge back these big corporations, people who vote. Um, and he helped enforce people like Theodore Roosevelt who were, you know, in the work of fighting corruptions. And then there's Jane Adams of Hull House. You know, we talked about her supporting families, immigrant families, settlement homes. Uh, she actually has a campaign against child labor in the state of Illinois that will lead to Illinois creating the first ever um, laws against child labor and, I'd like to mention, juvenile court system. So, and she'll even get involved in the peace movement in World War I. So, Jane Adams is another famous progressive. Sorry, I know I'm going through this pretty quickly. And then there's Ida Tarbell. This one's very interesting to me. She wrote History of the Standard Oil Company in 1904, and it published... Um, it published an overview of the tactics used by John D. Rockefeller. This book took direct aim at him. Uh, he hated this work, and he wanted somebody to dig up dirt on Ida Tarbell because he was so angry about it. Her own father worked for Standard Oil because her company, was, I believe, was bought out or absorbed. And um, she really did her homework. She really got the facts. She found key evidence of bribes, price fixing, rigging costs of shipping, intimidating other businesses out of business. Um, it's considered by some people the greatest work of investigative journalism of all time. And it really led to the breakup of Standard Oil in 1911. So Roosevelt would kind of begin that lawsuit and his vice president, who would become president after him, Taft, would carry on the breakup of Standard Oil into his presidency. So... Really, that's uh, some fascinating stuff. So Ida Tarbell's History of Standard Oil Company, very, very famous work. Um, I'll be covering more progressives as we get into women's suffrage in World War One. So thank you for listening today. Wow, sorry I got through that prog- those progressives uh, as quickly as I could, but we're around the 20-minute mark. Sorry this short's a bit longer than some of the other ones. Um, thank you for listening today, and we hope you enjoy. We'll be out with an Im- the imperialism episode next, and then we'll get into World War One and women's suffrage. So thank you for listening today.